0: You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference
1: desk. Thanks, Carl. Hi, and welcome to Episode 89 of the Library Pros Podcast. I'm Chris.
0: And I'm Bob. And today we're coming to you remotely from the booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York and the Emma S. Clark Memorial Library in Satoka, New York. Library Pros Podcast is a bi-monthly podcast, so please subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find podcasts. And please check us out on Twitter at The Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash The Library Pros. Consider leaving a review or tell someone about us, because word of mouth is the best way to help our podcast listenership grow.
1: Today, we're speaking with Mark Hirschberg, author of the career toolkit, essential skills for success that no one taught you from tracking criminals and terrorists on the dark web to creating marketplaces and new authentication systems. Marcus spent his career launching and developing new ventures at startups and fortune 500s. And in academia, he helped to start the undergraduate practice opportunities program dubbed MIT's career success accelerator, where he teaches annually at MIT He received his bachelor's in physics, a bachelor's in electrical engineering and computer science, and a master's in electrical engineering and computer science focusing on cryptology. This guy's way too smart for us. And at Harvard Business School, Mark helped create a platform used to teach finance at prominent business schools. And he also worked with many nonprofits, including Techie Youth and Plant a Million Corals. And... He's one of the top-rated ballroom dancers in the country and now lives in New York City. So before we get into this innovative idea about publishing that he has, let's have a chat with Mark. So, Mark, thanks for coming on and speaking with us today. You've spent a lot of time up in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So you're originally from Massachusetts?
2: Originally from New York, but I did spend a lot of time up in Boston, Cambridge, yes. Yeah, I did, too. I went to school up there, too. So I know exactly what you're
1: talking about. Green T.E., right? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah.
0: Uh, So uh, tell us what it's like not only being a student at MIT, but also teaching there. Uh, Most people who want to break into the tech engineering field would love to get into MIT, but you also transitioned to being a professor there. So what was that like?
2: MIT is really a wonderful place, and it is the mecca for nerds. When you grew up like I did as a nerd, and you get to MIT, and everyone likes talking math and science, and there's all these cool labs and lectures and people you can meet, it was really an amazing experience. And remember that I grew up in the 80s. We didn't have the internet. You couldn't find your people online or have access that you get today. So it was so wonderful. Teaching there is also such a great experience. I've been teaching there for the past 20 years. And working with the students, it's one of the highlights of my year is when I get to engage with them, when I get to help them change how they perceive their education and understanding. And it's just such a great moment to have. And of course, I get to work with some really amazing people there. So how did you find your way back to New York City?
1: And tell us how you got involved in ballroom dancing.
2: New York was a strategic change in my life. I moved here about 16 years ago. As much as Boston and Cambridge are wonderful, dating was not great. So I came to New York thinking I would have a better social life, better chance of meeting my wife. Hasn't quite worked yet, but I am still optimistic that uh, it will pay off in the long run. Now, as for the ballroom dancing, what most people don't know about MIT, we actually have one of the top athletic programs in the US. Not that we're the best at most sports, we're D3 in many, we're D1 in a couple of them, but we have a very broad athletic program and we have had fantastic teams that have won. We had a top pistol team, we have a pretty good crew team. I think our bowling team was number one when I was there. And ballroom dancing, while it's not an NCAA sport, it is still a sport that we have at MIT. We had, when I was there, one of the biggest teams and arguably one of the top teams in the country. We've produced a number of national champions. We would compete all over the country. And I just got into it because it seemed like a really fun activity as one of the best things I did in my life
1: we've never had a ballroom dancer on before and you know this is the first first. and i know that there are some schools here on long island that actually have ballroom dancing competitions there aren't that many schools that do it but when they do my nephews did it and it actually is great fun to watch it really is it's theater and it is competition and it's interesting to see kids do it
2: it is really wonderful and I have to say, I preferred competing on the collegiate circuit than the adult circuit. The collegiate circuit just had more energy. What surprises a lot of people the first time they see this is that it is noisy and rowdy because we think of ballroom as very refined and sophisticated. Everyone be quiet. They're listening to the music. When we're competing, we want to hear you cheer and shout and shout out the number of the competitor and applause. And we love it.
1: It's so cool. And it's... It's almost like watching like now it's the Tokyo Olympics. And when you see now that there's nobody in the stands, you can actually hear the teammates rooting for the person as they're doing their routines, which you couldn't hear before when there was, you know, the crowds. And I thought, wow, that must be really distracting. But no, I could see it as a motivator and it must be the same way with ballroom dancing.
2: Absolutely. And there's debate, of course, does it hurt the athletes not to have the roar of the crowd? And for some people, you just want... That overall noise, but also when you hear your name or your number shouted out, it really does motivate you. And look, all of us who are top athletes, we're used to competing at that 7 am meet where you just don't have a lot of people in the stands. We know what it's like to compete in an empty arena. So I think really good athletes, we get used to it. Just some people might prefer larger roar of the crowd. Some people might prefer being able to hear your individual name, and we all get motivated in different ways.
1: So we have a lot of stuff to talk about. So we're going to take a short break. And when we return, we're going to chat with Mark about how his background and his experience in publishing this book led him to think of new and interesting ways to market the written word. So we'll be right back. And we're back with Mark Hirschberg. One thing that we can agree on is that in the 21st century, books have transformed. It was a slow transformation, but with the worldwide COVID crisis, which seems to never go away, uh, digital books, audio books, and, and audio um, digital content with connected to print media have skyrocketed in popularity, whether the platform is Apple Books, Google Books, Amazon, or library sites like Overdrive, Libby, Hoopla, et cetera. And because these works are digital, it opens up
2: publishing to do more with the content, right? Really, we're at the beginning of a massive transformation in information, books and more broadly. If we think about the history of publishing, it hasn't changed much in a couple hundred years, right? We had basically the printing press was the biggest innovation Before that, it was done by hand, but even then, books were done the same way. You had a bunch of content on a page, you pressed it together, you bound it, and then you passed it around. And for most of human history, the primary cost of a book was in the production. It was the creation, if by hand, or the binding, even when it was done with a printing press. And that's how we've looked at books and content and their value. What happened in the last... 20, 40 years, depending on where you want to draw the line, is we have dropped the cost of distribution, really production and distribution to zero. I can take that digital file and I can give it out to 10 people or 10 million. And the marginal cost goes to zero. So suddenly, we can start to say, what is the value of the content itself? We also can package it up in different ways. What many people don't know is books have their size for a specific reason. If you're less than about 160 pages or so, you're far too thin. You can't sit on a bookshelf. You can't be seen. Your spine width is too small. And so no one would see the book to buy it. If you're more than, say, 700 pages, that's just too big. No one wants to carry that well, now we're no longer confined by these physical limitations. So we can chop up our content. We can start to put in ways that make logical sense from the nature of the content itself, as opposed to from a production or marketing sense. And that changes how we create it, how we price it and how we distribute it, totally transforming how we're going to be interacting with information going forward. The whole publishing
1: world has really blown up in the last... Fifteen years, and especially now it's been accelerated in the last five. So it just it boggles the mind what can happen,
2: considering like you were saying, the publishing world hasn't changed in quite a long time. And of course, we're seeing this not just with print media. When we look at audio media, both audio books, but even right now, podcasting relatively new, we see. Audio interactive experiences like Clubhouse. We see with television as it's moving to nonlinear formats, as we're moving to uh, streaming services. We're really seeing a transformation across the board in all sorts of content distribution and consumption.
0: So let's talk about the marketing end of things. In 1977, the movie industry or business end of movie marketing changed with a little-known film called Star Wars. Chris has a big LOL there. Oh, yeah. So this, chase, this change was in merchandising. Um, so do you have a take on publishing in the 21st century that is rather innovative and could be the future of publishing? Uh, for an example, online content, video games, physical merchandise, et cetera?
2: Absolutely. We are seeing how people want to engage in content in new and different ways. So let's take Star Wars or really any of your favorite Fiction content. We're going to start with fiction, and then we'll look at nonfiction as well. When you think about the biggest names in fiction, and you think Star Wars, you think Harry Potter, what they did is they took something that was perhaps a book and it became a movie, it has been standard for a while, but they went further. Action figures, as you mentioned, because someone who loves Star Wars as I certainly did. You didn't just want to watch the movie. You want to take those characters and create your own experiences with them. You could create your own adventures, your own stories. You might want to go and dress up, right? I've gone to Comic-Con. I've dressed up as characters. That's a different experience in that genre. Disney, of course, puts rides. Now, I was just reading earlier today Galaxy's Edge and their new hotel. And it's an interactive experience. What we're doing is we're taking our top fiction content, we're taking this universe and allowing people to engage with it in new ways. Whether you're playing in a Quidditch match with friends or whether you're using the action figures or going into some LARP live action role playing game, you get to take that content and repurpose it in different ways. And the content owners who are smart want to allow you to take that and use it in ways they might not have intended, but at the same time find ways to monetize it. So we've gone beyond just that linear experience of read the book, watch the movie. We've let people blow it up from that linear experience. Now, what does this mean for nonfiction? Certainly, no one's saying, "Oh, what a great book! I want to go to a." theme park about this book, or I want the seven habits action figures. We're not quite doing that, but we are saying, I like this content. It was great to engage with it in a linear way. That's in the book. Maybe they've engaged with it in a linear way by going to a seminar or watching a video online, but still we want to go further. And what we need to do as content creators is recognize we're not in the business of selling a book or a seminar or linear content, we're in the business of selling ideas and making them as accessible and consumable as we can to our audience. So we need to blow up this concept of a linear book or distribution model and use it in different ways as I've done with the app. Well, you know, it, it's interesting you bring that up because um, sometimes when realtors
1: are trying to sell you on get hiring them to sell your house, some of the marketing tools they give you is a book on how to sell your house. And what's really interesting is I feel bad for the poor sucker that wrote the book because every time you get it, it's the same book from different realtors and they say they're the author. So I can understand what you're saying with regard to like the nonfiction work, how you you know, you know can build something around it. And the first thing I thought of was, was how real estate kind of manipulates that a little bit.
2: Well, don't feel bad for that author because if I could write a book and let... 2000 people put their name on it and each go sell it to their friends. What a great sales team you have. Now, they're not selling it. Obviously, the realtors are buying and giving it out. But instead of one author or publisher trying to sell the book, you have 2000 people all across the US selling this book for you. That's a really great marketing model. Yes, it's very, I found it very strange.
1: So in terms of the whole marketing behind it with, with nonfiction, because, again, we, we can talk about fiction until the cows come home, and it's been done ad nauseum with books and with, turning books into movies and screenplays, and then you get all the merch that goes with it. Thinking in terms of isolating it just to movies first, like if you had the infinitely popular biography of Benjamin Franklin, that was something that's on reading lists in high schools all over the country, and I'm surprised somebody didn't scoop that up and, and had Paul Giamone play Ben Franklin. Other than movies, what could nonfiction books do? And we'll get into the app and all that other stuff later. But in terms of other, uh, yes, you can develop an app for the book. But where does it go past that, though? What other content have you
2: imagined that could be um, used for a nonfiction work? So let's take Ben Franklin. Obviously, you can take that linear experience. That could be the book. It could be a movie, could be podcast, could be audio we can we can do that. You could turn into video game-ish. We can imagine a video game experience, live his life, or a VR experience. What was it like to be in his house? I've been to Ben Franklin's house in Philadelphia, right? There's an example of taking something and putting it into a different format. And certainly we know historical places. I've been to the House of the Seven Gables. I think it was Nathaniel Hawthorne's house. And so we can get that physical experience. You could also supplement it, say, with activity sets. As you're reading about Ben Franklin, well, he's known as a scientist. So you could have science kits that go along with it. And if, for example, you're having your students read about Ben Franklin during this module in school, your science teacher could then supplement that with relevant experiments that tie into what you're learning. He was also. A politician. You could bring in some experiences as a diplomat. You could bring in diplomatic exercises. Given this challenge that we had during the American Revolution and trying to get France on our side, here's what he faced. How might you approach that and then look at what he did? And you can have your students start to learn and engage with a different type of content that's not as linear, but still ties into this larger universe that we think of as Ben Franklin.
1: You know, as we talk about Ben Franklin, I I probably would have been a better example would be Alexander Hamilton. There's so much that's connected with him. Just in terms of New York City, pre-COVID, you could go on Hamilton tours where they take you to his house up in Harlem. They take you to the place where all of the original patriots met because apparently the bar is still there. So you could do like walking tours. As To bring Boston into it, you could take the Ben Franklin walking tour. You could do the Freedom Trail. You could do all these different things. In terms of... Like Hamilton turned into, from that biography, turned into a play which has now turned into a merchandising heaven for Lin-Manuel Miranda, and probably tangentially the author who, who wrote the original work. Um, it really is interesting how things like that can explode once you hit the right chord and enough people get interested in something like that.
2: And I think it does make a difference for your particular audience what might resonate in a certain way. You could have turned Hamilton into a musical. Certainly his style of music that he chose was very important for resonating with the audience. And there's reasons why he picked those musical choices. When I think back to the House of the Seven Gables that I saw when I was a kid, yeah, I wasn't super excited about it. Because let's face it, a 13-year-old boy doesn't say, oh, look, here's a very old house that some... literary author who I think I heard of once and didn't really like used to live in that might not resonate well, but I probably also wasn't the target audience. 13-year-old boys aren't the target audience for the House of the Seven Gables. So you, you do have to think about who's your audience, what interests them, what would engage with your audience, and then pick from a large set. And maybe it is action figures. Maybe it is a VR interactive experience. Maybe it's workshops. Maybe it's tours. So keep a wide list of education, entertainment, edutainment as the hybrid category, other types of media, and just look across the spectrum and see what are other people doing with different types of content and how might that apply to you. It's really the wild west right now when it comes to this kind of thing, because the sky's the
1: limit. There hasn't been a standard set with the way like Lucas did it in 77.
2: So you you really could reinvent the wheel, as it were, for literary works. And to do this, it helps to really think about as a traditional product. So as we mentioned earlier, I have an app that went with my book. And it began when my neighbor, who's a marketer, said to me, oh, you should create an app for your book. I said, "Okay, wonderful. Well, what should the app do? She said, I don't know. Create an app. Okay, great. Next, you're going to tell me sell lots of copies. Ooh, good. Yeah, put that on my to-do list. <laughs> but I, I appreciate her inspiration and the she's given me lots of help, but right, a little, do this. Okay, wonderful. How? Fortunately, I have a background having built lots of startup companies and having worked in media to really think through this. Mm-hmm. And so I started thinking about what would the app do? Okay, I can take the book. I can make an ebook and stick in an app. People have done that. No one's excited about that. No one wants to download an app just to read a book. So what could we do that's different? I started thinking about what are the needs of users? And really, if you're a user, when you read a book, a nonfiction book, you're trying to generally learn something, particularly if you think about a business book like mine or a self-help book, you're doing it because you want to learn and then ultimately change or behave in a different way. Reading the book is the first step, but certainly not the last. And unfortunately, authors have said, here's the book. Well, this is as far as I can take you. Here's your new diet plan, exercise plan. Here's how to be a better whatever. Good luck to you. But we can go a step further because we can gauge the user after they finish that last page. So I thought about the app. I have a teaching background. I thought about spaced repetition. I know when I read a book, I say, wow, what a great book, whether it's about Ben Franklin or about business skills, and then you forget it a month later because we move on to the next book. Well, we know that spaced repetition helps people retain information. So it it sounded like the next logical step is to build something to allow that spaced repetition. No one's going back into the book and saying, let me reread it. Few of us do, but most people don't. There are flashcard apps out there. There are some where you can even create your own flashcard, but let's face it, no one wants to say, what a great book, I'm going to create flashcards for it, or I'm going to open a flashcard app and start flipping through flashcards. So one of the things that was missing in the market was a very passive way for people to continue to engage the the content post-reading the book. And I really didn't set out to create this. I thought this must've been out there and I'd go license it. And when it didn't exist, I patented it and created it, so it does a passive means of reinforcing the content. So what I've done is I've taken all the content from the book. If you went through with a highlighter, here's a good quote. Here's a key tip. It sits in the app, and you can use it one of two ways. The first is that you can just have each day a little notification on your phone. Think of it like a daily affirmation. And it just pops up with a reminder, and as you get reminded, you go, okay, right. This is going to reinforce what I read, and it's going to stick in your mind better. The other thing you can do is open it up and say, oh, I've got a negotiation coming up. I have a network event, so I'm going to jump to that content and quickly flip through it and get that crash course. From the reader standpoint, it's taking the same content in the book but giving it to them in a different format in a way that's better for them, either because it's that passive reminder each day or that active, oh, it's a networking event. What was I read last month? I need to see it right now from my pocket because they're not carrying the book with them. Now, from the author standpoint, we get a benefit as well. Every author, we love word of mouth. We want people to talk about our books all the time, but after someone finishes your book, well, two, three weeks later, they're on to something else and they forgot about your book. So now as an author, you get to stay top of mind. So there's a benefit for authors to take some of their content because initially you might think, well, I'm putting my content out there. Why would they buy the book if they can just flip through the tips? Typically, our content's going to be richer. This isn't giving them the full story. This is that reminder of it, but also helps keep the content top of mind and helps the author to hopefully get better word of mouth. And so when I thought about the need, okay, app, what can we do with an app? Really, what does the consumer need? Was the reader need? Was the author need? And then I could look at how I could use this particular medium to solve that need. And so each of us, as we think about whether it's the action figures, or it's the house, or the walking tour. What is it that the consumer wants? What is it that the producer wants? And how can you format this particular genre—not the genre of the book, but genre of communicating the ideas—to meet those needs? Well, you know, it, it's really interesting, and Bob,
1: I'm sure you're going to chime in about this too. Since th- there's been an argument since the invention of PDAs and smartphones. You could build an app in lieu of a web page for additional content around a book that's advantageous towards marketing that book, kind of like what you were just saying. And in the case of fiction, to build a character fan base in the case of nonfiction, further information of the work. So Bob has been involved in app building and this whole thing, too. So this question is probably for both of you. Chicken or the egg? App versus website. So now, in terms of devices that we have now, websites are more mobile, content-friendly, and 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 apps tend to be more high maintenance. Um, in terms of keeping that data fresh and keeping that information out there, what's your thoughts on apps versus websites, especially in terms of in, in this type of genre where you're? It's really a good idea that you could take the affirmations or parts of your book that you really like
2: and reintegrate it into something on your phone. It depends on the problem you're trying to solve and how you're solving it. So let's take for example Pottermore. And this of course is the I'm going to say website, but it's not just here's a web page you can look at, it's an experience. You can log in, you have your characters, your interactions it is a rich experience. And you can do that through the website. Now is the interface to that? I haven't been on Pottermore. If the interface to that is not as strong when going through a mobile website, perhaps adding an app will make it a better experience for those who want to go to the Pottermore world, but do so while they're away from their laptop, do so from their cell phone while they're mobile. If all you have is just a website with here are some talks, here's some other content. I have a lot of content on my website. I have in addition to all the podcasts. I have a bunch of downloads. I have links to other resources. But that's all it is. That can be satisfied by a web page and turn it into an app. Why would you download this app? You can just get all of this on a web page. It didn't add more. On the other hand, for the app I did create, one thing that you can't get from a website that you get from this app is that passive reminder. It's that push notification because if I built a website, you can look at the website with all the tips on your mobile device, but it can't push one a day. I could email it to you, but I know that's gonna get buried in your inbox. I could send you a text message, probably also will get buried. What the app allowed was that push notification laying you either swipe away when you say, okay, got it done, or click through to go deeper on that and engage with the content, and we'll be rolling out additional features for this app and for the white label version I'm creating that's going to allow the user to engage in a different way than they could just on a website. So it, it
1: sounds, and I, I agree 100%, it sounds like a website is more of a passive experience where an
2: app is an interactive, active experience. Generally, yes, certainly today's websites You can log into a website and interact on the website. And if the mobile interface for that is is sufficient, then you don't necessarily need an app. The pros and cons of having an app, the upside, of course, is you're stickier. You're on the phone and you can engage with resources on the phone, whether it's accessing their photos more readily or the microphone or other things on the phone. The downside, of course, is you have to convince people to download it. Whereas the website, okay, look at my website. You say, I'll take a look, interested, not interested. It didn't really cost you anything. If I say, look at my app, that's a very costly choice. The app itself is free. Costly in this case is I have to go and say, I'm going to install. If I don't like it, I have to uninstall. That's a lot of effort. So there's a higher barrier with an app. But once you're on, you do tend to be stickier and you've got access to more resources. Bob, what do you think about that?
0: I think they, they both still serve a purpose. I think the websites are very topical, like I think we were, were discussing. You know, you can get into the portals where you log in and you can give some sort of experience, but still I think it's topical. It just kind of rubs the edges of of what you've you know, what you've done or what you're about. I think when you make an app, and if you do it right, it sounds like Mark has, it becomes personal, it becomes part of an experience. Now that you're allowing them to take part in, uh, it gives them a deeper dive and more of a buy-in to what to what you're doing, to your book, to your you know way of thinking, and you really reach them at a more personal level. You're now in their pocket with them as they as they walk around and as they travel, and you know where as a website you have millions of. Uh, of, of things just like it. you know. I have to open up a, a browser. I have to bookmark your website. I have to you know, do all these additional things to get to it. And if you can get an app on their phone um, that gives them something additional as a tool to the book, then you've got them at their most personal space. I mean, you literally are now traveling around with them like their debit card or like their license in their wallet. And you've entered this new space that I don't think a website
1: can can quite create.
2: Yeah, you're exactly right, Bob. So I
1: agree 100% that an app is a more experiential experience, if that's not too redundant, as opposed to something that's a little more static with a website.
2: Yeah, it's more customizable and engaging than a website.
0: But if you can get there, if you can get to the app level and somebody actually installs it, you've entered this trusted zone and and you know what, they're going to if you give them a reason to keep using it. Kind of hats off. You're 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 in that in that family zone with them, and they'll always go back to it. Mark, give me your opinion on this. I feel like when you create an app like like you've done for the book, what else are you thinking of other things that you can do while you have their attention that may give them springboarding onto something else. You know, maybe your next project or their next project in their career as they as they continue to evolve. Um, reasons to continue using the app after the book. You know, not just the index card idea or having that quick reference ability, but um, even more, you know, what while you have their attention, what else can you can you put in there?
2: There's a whole bunch of things. I can't get into all of it just yet. But to your point, if you're just looking at those those index cards, those tips that will get static, you can make it more interactive. You can allow for more content to get in there either from myself, from the user, from other people. And that's going to make it a little more dynamic. There's also additional programming. So, and I don't mean code in this case. Something else I did that I was shocked I had not seen other authors do. As a business book author, we all want companies to buy our books, right? Rather than one person at a time, you get the company to go buy a thousand copies, And for most authors, it's saying, hey, head of HR, or CEO, please buy a thousand copies of my book. It's really great. And that's all they do. And they hope their brand name carries it. Well, if we're trying to make this a value to that company, we don't just say throw it out and hope they see the value. We want to make that value easier to unlock. So something else that I did, this is not yet in the app, but it could be another piece of the app is I create a development program. It's a free download on the website. So a company can say, well, if I'm going to go buy a thousand copies of your book, I'm going to download this program. And here's how we can use your book beyond just, hey, everyone read this. I hope you like it. Here's how you can use it to achieve specific goals. Here's how you can do specific things, design specific programs. And I give them the guide to do that. The app could be a next logical step would be taking that development program putting it into the app to help guide people through the process. Right now, HR needs to say, okay, here's the process we're going to use. and I've I've laid it all out for them, but someone at HR still has to say, let's make it happen. And I could have the app make that a little easier by automating some of those steps. So that's another direction we can go in.
0: Here's a challenge for you, Mark. So we have a a bunch of safety manuals here at the library, and uh, we call them living documents right because they never really get stale because we constantly have to update them so being uh, an avid reader and uh, now that's uh, i got to interview you with chris um i'm gonna buy your book i'm gonna download the app and check it out and i'm gonna hopefully talk to you and maybe come up with a way that you can that you can put something in the app that continues to follow me through my career Right. Almost that almost that allows me to maybe not take notes, but relate to what I've learned from, you know, almost becoming a life experience. You know, they read the book, they put it down, but how can you keep the book alive? Because it's going to apply every single day that they're that they're working or that they're alive, right? Yeah. So it'd be really cool to see how you could do that. That'd be neat.
2: Certainly the app that that is the dream, right? Create an yeah. app that someone wants to go to every day for the rest of their lives. Certainly, the way we designed it is on the back end, I can continue to add more content. And so then the question is, how do I make that content? I can upload lots and lots of content. How do we start to get the app to be personalized to you based on your goals, your interests, what you're willing to share? Right now, the app, it doesn't look at any data on your phone. It doesn't know anything about you. As a cybersecurity professional, (laughs) I very much respect privacy, but people start to say, this is my goal, personally or professionally. Here's what I'm trying to do and are willing to share certain amounts of information. We can then take this ever-growing library of content and make it more customizable for the individual to help with a particular goal. In fact, one thing I talk about in the book Chapter one is on creating career plans. And we talk about here's where you are today. Here's where you want to be in 10, 15 years. Let's map out what those steps are. Certainly, if I create that as a more interactive experience in the app, then I can say, well, you said your goals this year are to do the following. Let's bring up content or other things that are relevant to the goal that you have shared. So that's certainly something down the road I would hope to get into the app.
0: So. In publishing, there's this word brand. And so can you explain what you're branding in publishing? Is it the author, the story, the characters, or the content? Is that the brand? And how should publishers be building this quote-unquote brand?
2: It's going to be different for different people. We certainly think of the Star Wars brand, the Harry Potter brand in fiction, as that is a brand in of itself, or Marvel as a whole brand. There's also the concept of the author who himself or herself is a brand. Tony Robbins is a brand. Everyone's heard of Tony Robbins. He, I'm sure, has multiple books. I actually don't know, but I assume he has multiple books. He has his courses, but his name is a key part of that particular brand. I have friends who have written books. Their website happens to be their name. It's JamesSmith.com and they have lots of different books. Now, I explicitly chose not to do that. And one reason is because I have perhaps you could think of as multiple personalities. There's my ballroom community. I don't really compete much anymore, but there are people who know me as a very avid ballroom dancer. There are people who know me as a startup guy or as a cybersecurity guy. And now there are people who know me as someone who's taught MIT for 20 years and knows a lot about professional development. There's not a lot of overlap in these groups. And so if I really focused on the Mark Hirschberg brand, I'm gonna wind up with some brand confusion. Someone who heard about this great book, they go to my website and they see some content about Cybersecurity trends, yeah, that's that's strange, or vice versa. So I very explicitly created a brand around my book. And in fact, one of the things I thought through when I came up with the title, The Career Toolkit, said, okay, well, if this is successful, and thankfully it has been, what's likely to come next? And can that brand extend to it? So The Toolkit, it's this very general concept. You can imagine adding more tools to The Toolkit. And additional books will fall under that title. So you don't have to say, oh, the career toolkit book website. Nope, it doesn't work. And now I have to totally rebrand. But here's the other thing I did. And this comes from, I've been fortunate to have some good marketing experience. It's that our branding can't just be tied to the book. So what I've done, I I have the book, the design team came up with these little icons, these businessy icons. It's I would say a step above clip art looks a little nicer, but has that kind of stick figure feel to it. And they have this generic look. I said, well, look, if we're going to do this, I really want to tie it to the book. I get this businessy concept, but don't just put generic things up there. Tie it into the messaging in the book. So in this case, each chapter has its own icon. The chapter on interviewing has two people sitting across a desk. Chapter on leadership has someone standing in front of a bunch of people okay, well, that's nice, looks a little more relevant. And we have on the cover and we have in the chapters. And most people would leave it at that. Obviously your website also should follow the same styling, but really I'm using this to create the iconography to really create a strong brand. So these icons are being used, not just in the book and on the website, also in the blog, also in the social media posts, also in the app also in the guides I put out there, the free downloads, also in the talks that I do, everything follows this brand consistency. Because now, particularly because I have this unique set of icons, all of a sudden people can recognize these icons going from one channel to another, going from reading a blog post to looking at social media to seeing a talk and saying, oh, I recognize that. I know the consistency. And so if you are trying to go beyond just, well, I create a book, hopefully people will read it, but you're trying to create this larger presence, this larger set of content, think about your branding, whether it's your logo, your fonts, your colors, how this is going to work across the multiple mediums and be consistent. So you have that brand identity across every channel in which you engage. It's it's about uniformity too, right? Absolutely. You want to, Think about some of the biggest icons we have. If I showed you five rings in that format, you go, oh, Olympics. I recognize it. Coca-Cola, the Nike swoosh. You see that swoosh? You look and say Nike. And so they've created very strong brands. Now, I might not be at the level of Coke or Nike or the mouse ears, but by having this consistent icon that or set of icons, in my case, that are going across multiple channels, it might not be known to everyone in the world, but in the audience I'm engaging with, as they see it multiple times, they're less likely to remember my name or the name of the book, but they start to recognize, I know that imagery. I know that kind of icon. I've seen it before, and it was good quality. I liked what I heard last time, so I want to check this out. I want to follow that social media post or listen to this podcast because they know that brand. So how do you think
1: libraries, whether it's an individual library or library system, can use this new branding technique to their advantage?
2: Good question. Now, I grew up loving libraries. My parents emphasized education. As a little kid, we'd go every week to the library in Winnetka, Illinois, and then when we moved to Princeton Junction, New Jersey. In my elementary school, middle school, high school, I was always at the library. I think the first question we need to ask ourselves is, what is the purpose of the library? And if the purpose is just to store books, you're probably thinking too narrowly or just to provide books. Really, the library is about providing information, and that broadens it. I certainly know from other librarians I've spoken with, there are classes and workshops and talks. Um, engage with the New York Public Library to do some workshops that we're trying to figure out how to make that work as the Delta variant increases. I was speaking with a library earlier who is doing maker fairs and doing hands-on. Here's doing things with the Raspberry Pi because that is about learning and knowledge, which is the essence of the library. We certainly know library said we had to go virtual and some of that, well, it's still physical. The, the virtual pickup and book drop but other programs that really moved online. And so as we think about the 21st century, the library, I think most people look at as, well, that's where the books are. You think of library books, and we need to change that to library learning. The libraries are for learning. Books are a great way to do it, but there's other means to do it. And the library is going to provide multiple services. And I wouldn't try to do everything at once, but definitely you want to hit over and over library learning. I'm, I'm going to guess I haven't looked at library media in a while. But if you look at the websites, if you look at the posters, if you look at the words used, we see books, we see pictures of books, we see the word books over and over. And I think it needs to be brought into the library is about learning. And that's going to let you then Add these other programs that are brand consistent. Because if you're just talking about books and someone hears, you're teaching people how to use a Raspberry Pi, or we have resume workshops, you're like, "Eh, I guess they can do that, but it's not a book. But if it's about learning, this all falls into that consistent brand. Yeah, and that's
1: something I think. Libraries are moving towards that now. I know it, where, where I am, at. It, it's one of those things where we incorporate that and we talk about the different things we do. We actually did a, a marketing campaign in the build up to our budget vote called 31 Ways in 31 Days, where every day we recorded a video talking about something that the library did. And it was some of the traditional stuff, but a lot of the non traditional things. So if you're out there and you want to see that, you know, check out, go to Sitcham Library on YouTube and put in 31 Ways in 31 Days, and you can see that kind of marketing campaign. So the idea is to get it out there and to show the world that libraries are more than just books. Yes, we're still books, but it's not 80% of what we do anymore. I'm going to say it's a number lower than that, that I'm not going to commit to because I will get crucified.
0: (laughs) You're a smart guy.
1: It is lower than 80% Mm -hmm. at this point. We do so much now with education, classes, trips, experiences, technology, um, and, People who come to the reference desk now, they don't come looking for a book, they come looking for help. Mm -hmm. And that help can be help with their device, help with logging onto a website, help with figuring out how to pay their taxes without telling them how to pay their taxes. Even something as silly as, I need to print this out because my printer at home is broken. So we're there sometimes as a shoestring catch for patrons, sometimes as an assistance for patrons, sometimes it's a lifeline for patrons. Sometimes some people can't afford a computer, so they come to the library for that, or they can't afford to go to the movies, so they'll come to a movie night, or they can't afford to do something that ordinarily, you know, maybe it's a Raspberry Pi class, maybe it's a 3D printing class, maybe it's it's using technology like like the booth, you know, for for sound recording. They they can't get a record contract, so maybe they want to record some vocals and and overlay some music and do some of those other things. So I think libraries are pushing those boundaries. It's just a matter of how they do it and how they let the world know about it
0: and how they market their brand too right chris
1: yeah absolutely and a lot of libraries don't even have that brand they don't have that that logo if they do like mark was saying it's probably a book involved in that logo which is fine but you, you have to tell the whole story you can't
2: just keep living the stereotype
1: so mark tell us a little bit more about
0: the book about the career toolkit
2: the Career Toolkit, it's based on 20 years of teaching at MIT, plus other work I've done with some nonprofits and mentoring. What we learned 20 years ago is there's a number of skills that corporate, there are a number of skills that our corporate partners at MIT, the people come and recruit our students, were looking for and they're just not finding. And these skills, as you'll hear in a moment, it's not unique just to MIT. It's not unique just to students. So consider, for example, networking. We've all heard networking. It's so important. Or teacher said it, or parents said it, but at no point did anyone sit us down and say, here's how to do it. So having taught this for years, knowing how to teach it, and for all these skills, it involves a mental shift. And then here are techniques. Now that you understand how to approach it, here are concrete tips that you can use to be effective. So the book breaks down into three sections. The first is on careers, how to create and execute a career plan from figuring out what you might want to do to how do I get to this specific job? Second section, workplace skills, managing your manager, understanding corporate culture, corporate politics. How do we effectively deal with this? Third section on interviewing, which I look at not only from the candidate side, there's lots of resources on that, but also from the hiring manager side. So many of us are involved in hiring and no one actually taught us how to interview candidates. The second section is on leadership and management. And I break down the essence of leadership and then management, both the people side of management and the process side. And these skills I really look at from what is the essence that all of us need to do. Even people say, I don't wanna be a manager, I'm not a manager. Well, you're still going to use some of these techniques leadership techniques and management techniques even if you say you want to be only an individual contributor the third section gets to interpersonal dynamics communication networking negotiation and ethics so these are the top skills that we know companies are asking for and they're just not finding because unfortunately we haven't been teaching them i'm going to order two copies for our library because this is something that really needs to get out there and it seems like it's broken down in a way that's simple to understand so I'd love that. I'd love to get into more libraries. I'm happy to work with libraries to do some type of virtual workshop or other things to really help teach people. Because like so many authors, it's not just about trying to sell books. It's about helping people. And I've seen the impact this has had on our students and others. And I hope we can have this impact on a larger audience. So I want to thank you
1: for sharing all of the info with regard to marketing, both in publishing and for us here in, in library land. So we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to be asking Mark our top 10 library questions, or what we like to call the 032 list, which is a Dewey number for top 10 list. And this is a challenge because Mark doesn't necessarily work in a library, but we're going to give it a shot. And as always, we give thanks to Melanie Cardone from the Longwood Public Library for naming the list of questions we ask all of our guests. So we will be right back.
0: And we're back with Mark Hirschberg, who will be our next participant in our 032 list. Questions in our list were inspired by Literary Hub, a source for library news that has stories and interviews related to library land. You can see their work by visiting lithub.com, and they do a great job educating and informing library professionals on great topics from all over the world. Once again, thank you, Literary Hub.
2: Okay, Mark, are you ready? What did you want to be when you were a child? At age four, I believe it was a fireman. Age five, stockbroker. Age nine, physicist. And then throughout high school, it was physicist plus computer programmer plus politician plus lawyer and trying to figure out how to fit all those in. I wound up doing the computer science and I spend a lot of time with lawyers. So I might get a little of that in as well.
0: So what's your first memory of a library? And I guess who brought you to the library for the first
2: time? My mother definitely brought me to the library for the first time. I don't remember exactly my first, but two early memories. The Winnetka Library had this wonderful contest where every book you read, you got this little sticky brick, and we were trying to put the bricks on the castle for some big story that they were going to do at the end of the summer. I read, I think, close to 180 books that summer. It's probably in third or fourth grade. The other early library memory at my elementary school growing up, instead of just having books, and I don't know, maybe maybe many school libraries have this, but there were crawl spaces up top so you could climb up this little ladder to this platform that was about four feet off the ground. It was almost like a hamster run. And there were just little places and nooks where you could sit with a book and read. And it just made it a little more fun to be in the library. And those are my my first two memories. When did you decide to work in your current profession?
1: And was it your first career choice?
2: I feel as though I have two professions because I am a CTO and I build tech startup companies. And that really came out of studying computer science at MIT and what we talked about a moment ago of what I wanted to do. But along the way, when I recognized the importance of these skills, we helped to create the program at MIT where I've been teaching for the past 20 years. And I've had this second career, parallel careers, I think about, where I have been teaching at MIT and elsewhere, and now the book and the talks I do along with it. So that started about two decades ago.
0: So who would you say is your favorite fictional librarian?
2: Give me a second for this one. We stumped him (laughs) on this one.
0: Nice job, Chris.
2: A few come to mind, but I don't think they're my, my favorite. You know, you know who I would go with? Probably not one you're expecting. The librarian in Ghostbusters. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we've had that before. That's a good
1: one. We have. Not for a while, though. Yeah, not for good. a while. What would you be doing if you were not working in the fields that you're working in? And you're working in like a gazillion fields. So I couldn't imagine you'd want to work any, any place else to do anything
2: else. I'd certainly want to keep building businesses, and maybe it's not as a CTO, but in some other capacity. I did work as a VC briefly at one point in my career. I might consider going back to that VC venture capitalists, the people who fund companies, although I like to be hands on. I certainly like teaching, and even if I wasn't an instructor at MIT, I'd want to teach in other ways. And so I'd find other ways to do that. Something maybe that involved some travel would be fun. So yeah, not exactly sure, but um, doing at least some of the same things I'm doing, even if the title or the nature of the job was was different.
0: So what would you say your favorite section of a library is?
2: As a kid, I read every physics book they had in the library. and then I went and got all the math books. So I think I just naturally gravitate towards the science books. I uh, see who I am at the core. These days I probably mix in some business books and history books because I really love history as well. Okay, so if you had infinite space and
1: budget, what would you add to your local library? So it could be the local library back in Illinois, or it could be here in
2: New York City. In addition to lots and lots of books, because I still love books, but of course libraries, as we said, need to be more than books. I would add spaces for events, for training, for workshops, for people to build things and do things. You mentioned your recording, uh, the recording area you have at yours. I think that's brilliant. Create a couple areas for people to do recordings if they want to create their own podcasts or, or sounds. Certainly a maker area where you could work with Raspberry Pis or 3D printing, and you can engage and really build in a hands-on way. I think that's so important. And just gathering spaces, even beyond the traditional organized workshops, libraries can be a place of gathering with a course, I think very important, indoor and outdoor spaces because it's great to be outside in the summer, but still really be able to, to focus and learn while you're outside in nature. So
0: what would you say you love about libraries?
2: Thanks to my parents, I always grew up to love learning, to really appreciate knowledge. To this day, I cannot throw out a book. I can donate some, and even that's hard for me because books are knowledge, and I've been taught the value of knowledge. You don't want to lose knowledge or get rid of it. So when I think of libraries, they are places where I can go to learn, and that that's always what attracts me to a library and what I always enjoy about them. So this next question was geared
1: towards working in a library because weird things happen in libraries, but we kind of tweaked it for you. What is the weirdest thing that's ever happened in your career other than ballroom dancing? And I don't want to say that's weird. It's just different.
2: There's a couple ways I can go with this (laughs) and try to think which is the right way to do it. I would say what really threw me, I was brought in as The COO to this company, the investor said, we have a challenge. There's a CEO who is not doing a good job, is a very young kid. We need to put you in as a buffer. And the fact that I was there was already, I think, a problem. So at one point, he disappeared for a few days. We knew he was basically getting towards the breaking point. We could see signs. Not that we were pushing him, but he was just I think gaining more stress by how everything was playing out. And at one point it was a tiny company. We're having a meeting and no one had seen him for a few days. This is before, just to give you the context, this is before he checked himself into a psychiatric facility. So no one had seen him for a few days. And as I'm speaking with the group and saying, look, I know it's been a little weird lately and here's what we're doing. Someone asked the question, does anyone know? Does he own a gun? I remember thinking, I'm sure large companies have some formal HR training for what to do in this circumstance. I've had none of that. I have no idea how to answer this question. So I just said, OK, does anyone know? Does he own a gun? There were a blank stare. I said, All right, look, if anyone gets information from him, where he is, what he's doing, let me know. I'll coordinate with everyone. If anyone feels unsafe, feel free to go home. We'll try to be as transparent as possible just so everyone's clear and everyone feels safe. But I definitely was not prepared for that question. Wow, that's a good one.
0: I could imagine that was interesting coming out in the middle of a meeting. Um, so Mark, do you have a favorite regular? And usually we ask this, uh, do you have a memorable student or a memorable faculty member, staff member?
2: I have a number of them. And I've worked with some really great people, Professor Charles Leiserson at MIT, Chris Resto, who started the program at MIT, my sixth grade teacher, Mr. Conrad Smith, who was just a wonderful instructor and math teacher. There's also, I've had some really great students, but one that really stands out. And granted, it probably does so maybe out of hubris or, or what I got out of it. And this really gets to why I love teaching what I do. At the end of our program, we have a networking lunch. We say to the students, this is a networking event. It's not a career fair. It's not walk up to people and hand them your resume, because of course, that's not what we do in real life. This is a lunch with a bunch of people, some who might be able to hire you, but just go and chat with them and have conversations. And maybe you hear about a job opportunity, maybe not, but you're going to learn something from them. So as the adults, as these professionals started coming into the room, I was saying with a group of students, said, Okay, now you're all sitting together, start dispersing, go to other tables, start mixing with these adults. And they slowly got up and did it. There was this one girl and she was very hesitant. Some people are more natural at this. Some people are a little more hesitant. And she was just really nervous. So I knew what she was interested in. And a friend of mine who was one of the instructors at the time happened to work in that field. So I brought her over. I introduced her to him, explained who she was, what her interest was, got the conversation started and stood there for a minute or two until it got off. I knew he'd be fine with her. And they went off to check on other students. Fast forward to about 90 minutes later as we gave the warning, okay, everyone begin to wrap up your conversations We're we're going to be finishing up this segment. And I saw her as she's just finishing up and scrambling to go talk to someone else. And she looked at me and said, this is so much fun. I don't want to end. And in that moment, during those 90 minutes, we were able to transform her because so many people think of networking as this is that That slimy experience. I have to go out, talk to strangers. I have to ask for business cards. I have to do these things I don't like. And she would have gone through for many other years with this, I don't like networking attitude. But once we got her to look at it in a different way, to look at as meeting people, learning, forming relationships, she saw the value in it. And from that moment onward, now she would, instead of saying, I don't want to do this networking event, she would seek them out. And she would get more value from them and really accelerate and advance her career because she would develop this network. And with all the different skills that we teach, when we get that light bulb moment, when they suddenly look at it in a different way, you have such an amazing impact on the lives of people. And so I will always carry that moment, that experience with that student as what I love about teaching. So our final question, what are people without library cards missing out on? They are missing out on one of the greatest ideas that America has had. And this goes back to, of course, Benjamin Franklin, who promoted the free public library. This is one of the great equalizers. We offer free public education in this country, although it certainly isn't always equal for one district to another. Libraries are a way where if you're not getting from your school, your community, your environment, libraries are a great way to be more self-directed and proactive in bettering yourself, in learning, in getting access to resources. And now I say self-directed, but of course, you have wonderful, very knowledgeable, trained, experienced librarians. I'm preaching to the choir, obviously. Most people don't realize (laughs) just how much education and training librarians have had. You've got these amazing people who even if you're self-directed, they are there to help guide and support you and help you create that path and execute on it. And it is just such a wonderful resource that everyone should avail themselves to.
1: So Mark, give us some plugs, your website, all kind of, all that good stuff. Where we can we find you on the app store?
2: You can go to my website, thecareertoolkitbook.com. There, of course, you can get in touch with me. You can follow me across multiple social media channels. You can learn more about the book you can also it's i have links to the web stores from the website it's the career toolkit app but it's linked to both the android and iphone stores if you want to go and download the completely free app then there's also the resources page i list dozens of other books that i reference in mine or other books that just help me along my own journey so people who want to go deeper on this content go look at those great books. I link to great resources online. I try to link to free ones when I can. So if there's a particular topic you want to learn more about to get more resources for it's there. So whether for yourself or maybe for a library program, you're trying to create, it's all there on the resources page. And then there are the free downloads, some of which can be used to create workshops. I mentioned how I created that for corporate environments Libraries can do these too. And that's what I'm speaking with the New York Public Library about, how we can create these programs. And hopefully we can roll it out to other libraries as well. But all of this, it's completely free. It's all on the website, thecareertoolkitbook.com. Mark Hirschberg, this has been great. Thank you so much for coming on and joining us today. Thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed being here.
1: We have come to the end of another episode of The Library Pros, and we thank you for listening. If you have any questions or comments on this or any episode, click on the contact us form on our website, thelibrarypros.com. Visit us on Twitter at thelibrarypros and on Facebook at facebook.com/librarypros. Don't forget to tell a friend or colleague and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Special thanks to our podcasting engineer, Dean Meyer. Remember, the opinions stated by the Library Pros and their guests are solely those of Chris and Bob and are not those of the Sajun Public Library, the M.S. Clark Memorial Library, or any other library. See you next time.
0: You've been listening to the Library Pros Podcast. The Library Pros are brought to you by Pippin Productions and by the Library Pros themselves, Christy Christofaro and Bob Johnson. Special thanks to Sajun Public Library for providing space for this podcast. Until the next turn of the page, I'm your announcer, Carlton Welch.